Welcome to New Life Baptist Preaching. In this series, we will be studying the book of Malachi, where he gives a call to the people of God to return to the Lord. This book is full of hard rebuke and hopeful promise of the coming Messiah. We welcome you to subscribe and join us each Lord's Day so that you don't miss a single Sunday. Malachi has proven to be a humbling a humbling letter. It's a humbling word of God. There seems to be a central theme calling the people of God to return to the Lord. And so far, the, the people of God have suffered a, a staunch rebuke. Uh, they've been called out on faultiness in their worship where they have departed from, if we might say this, the regulative principle of worship. They have not worshipped God according to His Word, and uh, He has found fault with them. Now in this final book, it's the last book in the Old Testament, and these are some of the final words spoken of the Lord that are going to precede the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's His name that we worship this morning. And so we're reading from Malachi. And this morning, if we were to assign a theme that would summarize our conversation, it would be waiting on a holy God. Waiting on a holy God. We are spending our time focusing on one verse in verse 17. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. Now God has addressed the Levites in their offering. He has addressed Judah in the intent of their heart. And now we find this as a central point of transition before God begins to deliver the promises that are going to set up this coming of the Chosen One. And so I'm going to read just verse 17, and I welcome you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. This is the Word of the Lord this morning. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? Father, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you would teach us patience. Lord, there are some in our day who have asked these same questions, Lord, who have made these false claims against You as we sometimes wait impatiently for the return of our Savior. As we sometimes have grown to doubt the full effect of Christ Jesus. When we set our eyes upon the church, or upon our nation, upon the brokenness of our homes, or the sinfulness that we still strive against. 
Father, we pray this morning that you would fixate our eyes upon Christ. Lord, that we would come to understand something of you and what it is you have accomplished through him. And Lord, that you would temper our hearts for this hour of worship. But Lord, also for this hour of our existence. That you would lead us in the direction that you have called us and that you would accomplish great things for your glory through the people here of New Life Baptist Church. It's in the name of in the precious name of Christ that we pray, amen. You may be seated. There's so much contained in such a short study. The tone of the passage has, has grown no more um, in just light. It still bears the same weight and heaviness that it has in the weeks that have led up to this, the rebuke to the Levites and the rebuke to Judah. And, and now we read these words, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But Christian, you cannot forget when you read such a rebuke, you must remember and understand, even in the context of such a rebuke as this, that God hears us in all that we do. There's an outline on the back of your bulletin, and that's the outline I'll be following, and I'll, I'll try to stick as close to those few points as I can and give you some scriptures that you may want to record and go back to this week. The first is this, is that God... Hears you. We worship the God who hears. This is presupposed. It's taken for granted whenever we hear from Him a rebuke that we're, He is wearied by our words. He's heard us. He's heard the words of Judah and the words of Israel that's caused Him to be wearied by them. But listen, there's a number of implications that come from this. When you understand that God hears us, in all that we do, first you, you realize that He is unlike the other gods. God hears us. Psalm 115, verses 5 through 8, reads, when speaking of these other idols and other gods, they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You see, the distinction is this. We worship the God who hears. The one who does speak. The one who does see. The one who does feel and act and touch, and walk, and move in and among His people. Your God hears you. He hears you. He hears every idle speech spoken. He is the God who hears. But with that comes another implication. If indeed God hears, this must mean that His oversight is 
inescapable. Which means there is nothing hidden from your God. In Psalm 33, verse 13 through 15, the psalmist notes this. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. This by itself is more humbling than the rebuke that Malachi has given. There is nothing that is hidden from the Lord who hears you. Friend, let that sink in a moment. I found myself recalling the words of Pastor Bodie Bauckham, who answering the problem of evil in the world, he said, I, I won't answer your question unless you ask it this way. How does the God who is good and holy and just know what I did, said, and thought yesterday allow me to wake up today. Now that's a helpful representation, but bring it home, God has heard the uprising in your heart. He already knows your doubtful tendencies when you watch the news. He knows the hatred that has flared up within your heart when you have entered conflict within your own home. He knows how shaky that you are as He watches your impatience with your spouse or with your children. You see, His oversight is inescapable. So that's pretty humbling. And yet, it is that overwhelming sense of the presence of God that gives us assurance whenever we come to know that He hears the cries of His people. It is that same weighty oversight that lets us know He hears us in the depths of our affliction. The Psalms help us again in Psalm 34, verses 17 through 18. We read, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. If anything, we're seeing how helpful the Psalms are as we go through them on Wednesday nights reminding us of this element of God's hearing us. Of His presence with us in our time of need. And so if we want the God who hears us in our affliction, the God who meets us in our time of need, well, then we must deal with the God who hears us when we sin and when we grumble in our hearts against Him. It is the same God. 
In this case, the God who hears us, He's heard something that maybe we wouldn't want Him to hear. Maybe He's heard some grumblings that Israel, in a time when Israel had forgotten that God hears their every grumbling. And He responds, God is wearied by our faithless prayers. Now, earlier in this passage in Malachi 2, we've read so much of, the, of Judah who has act, acted faithlessly in their marriages, and he compares that to the way they've acted faithlessly in their worship. And now God continues and He says that He is wearied by their faithless speech and their faithless prayers before Him. He's already dealt with the faithless issue of their worship. He's already addressed them in regard to their unholy offering. Proverbs 21-27 reads, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? And yet that's exactly what he's addressed. Whenever he, he came first to the Levites, and he said... You have given this sacrifice that was an abomination. He addressed them for giving sacrifices that were uh, with spot and with wrinkle and with blemish. They weren't the first fruits of God's blessing. They were ones that had been taken by violence or by strangulation or some other thing. And so he's addressed the unholiness of their offering. But then he turns to Judah and he says... You've, you've given this offering. You've brought this offering with an impure heart. You've done so, and you've, you've done so without gladness. You've done so without faithfulness. And so he addresses the wickedness of the one who brings it with ill intent. And so now, after addressing both the offering and the offerer, God says to Judah, you weary me. You weary me with your words. Even in their conversation, they are not pleasing to God. Now we know that God does not grow tired or weary in the sense of physical exhaustion that He has come to the end and, and there's no more that He can do. And we know by the Scriptures that's untrue. We know even by... Malachi, it's untrue. As a matter of fact, he's going to uh, turn his conversation to show how much that he intends to do from this point. Yet here we learn when God says, you weary me, that the behavior, the behavior of the people of God is relentless and unenjoyable. To God. That's what makes it so weighty for us to consider that God can hear us, that God can see us in our thoughts, our deeds, our intention, our heart, and our grumblings. It's for the simple fact that God may not be pleased with what He sees. He is wearied 
Now it's interesting, we have discussed Malachi's use of marriage as metaphor for our relationship to God. We've seen the way that as Judah has sought wives of, a, of the daughters of foreign gods, they've, they've left themselves open to false worship and they have so neglected the worship of the one true and living God. And then we can't help but notice the way that he moves to this conversation of being wearied by the people who he has compared to being as his wife. Of the husband who is their creator. Referring to passages referenced last week. So we can say God has then in some sense given the emotion of the letter has compared the people of God to that of a nagging wife. You know the scriptures, Proverbs 21.9, it is better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a housetop or than a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Later in the same chapter of Proverbs 21.19, he writes that it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Proverbs 27.15-16, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. It is a wearying thing, and yet it's not the character of the women of Judah that's being addressed. It is not as if God is saying in His Word, uh, look at these nagging women that won't pipe down. He's addressing the whole people of God who has become this way, who has become His bride, but they're not a bride that He enjoys. It's the entire people of God that are being addressed. You have become a wearisome burden to me. One that I do not enjoy. They're not a pleasing bride pictured in white, but a burden or a headache to the Lord. As we consider our own state as to whether or not our lives are a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord, it it puts us in quite the fretful situation. What an offense this is to think of ourselves as the unhappy wife. What is it that would drive the Lord to say this of His people? You have wearied me. After He's compared us to that wife, why would we be such a weary? What has made Judah and the people of Israel so wearisome to God? Well, there are two ways that they've done so in their grumblings. They ask this question as if to justify themselves. Well, how have we wearied you? How have we done such a thing? And he says, this is how. When you say everyone that does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and He delights in them. 
They've brought a false accusation against God. They have said, you're wearied in us, but you delight in the wicked. They hurl these false accusations in, in, against him, and yet there's a couple of ways in which this is true. First is that they themselves have become wicked. And in their haughty arrogance, they've said he's delighted in their wicked offerings. In their offensive worship, they've pretended as if God is pleased in that. In another way, as if he has said he's pleased in the deeds of the wicked and not pleased in those who are seeking to do righteousness. Which gets into the second question. When we see at the first, what becomes painfully obvious after we've already addressed and encountered the fraudulent worship of the people of God, they've certainly confused good and evil. The wicked confuse good and evil. Make note of a few other passages. One is Isaiah 5.20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them. You see, that is what they've accused God of doing. They've accused God of putting good for evil and evil for good, and yet that is what they themselves are guilty of doing. Proverbs 17.15 reads, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike and an abomination to the Lord. Listen to this accusation. What a terrible thing to accuse God of stepping down from His throne of falling by his own command and his own righteous standard for the Lord to become an abomination to the Lord. It's impossible. And yet they in their self-righteousness have done the very thing. If they hadn't already with their unfaithful offerings and with their abominations that come against and oppose the law of the Lord, certainly they've done so by, by uttering such blasphemies against the holy God. They have called good what is in fact evil. This is the judgment that God delivers in a time when Israel was being judged We read in Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel, but everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is the judgment. Not only were they guilty of switching these roles of good and evil, but they were saying that the good die young, the wicked are successful, therefore God is blessing the wicked. So not only do they swap these roles, do they do what's evil and they say that it's good, but then they come to accuse God of saying, you God are blessing that which is wicked. 
In other words, God is wrong. Or God is wicked. Or that God is slow to exercise his good judgment. Which is the flip side of the same coin and the second question that God says the people have wearied him by saying, where is the God of judgment? Where is the God of judgment? Malachi puts this to rest. God is not slow to judge. He is not slow to judge. You see, this is the direction of the remainder of this word of the Lord through Malachi. He transitions at this point and shows all the way in which he is not slow to judge. He shows all of the ways in which God is exercising his authority in showing good judgment in having delivered the, the law and to show them the full fruits of their sin before he sends his perfect and one and unique son who is Jesus Christ. In the very next verse, we will read and enter into study even next week. But I'll give you a glimpse of this. In the very next verse, we will read the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to His temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. He is not slow in His coming. Malachi moves in the direction of prophesying about the coming of Christ and the messenger that would come before Him, that is John the Baptist, that would prepare this way for the, the incoming of the new kingdom, the new covenant, the covenant that would be sealed in His blood. But God is not slow to judge. This bears time of meditation. It bears repeating. God has spent all of these years, centuries with Israel. We read of all of the ins and the outs and the ups and the downs and we see the way God has continually and progressively revealed Himself and His righteousness through the law. This is no different, and yet this comes as some of the final words that would draw His people again to Himself to return to the Lord before He would send His Savior. And yet you've got to realize too, understand, from the final words spoken by God through the prophets, it would be some 400 years before He would come again to Zechariah to promise and tell him this, this is your son who will prepare the way for my son. How many times will these grumblings persist over the course of 400 years? 
And yet now we are here. We stand as the people of God who have had this son delivered and how constantly like the dripping of water and a weary to the Lord. Do we hear people say that the Lord is slow in his return? Do we hear people say and assure us as Christians and as the church, the Lord will not come in this generation for we know He is one who is slow to judge. That has become the nature of our ministry so often. We've grown comfortable in saying that we can persist in our own strength. Did you hear? Did you hear what our brother read this morning from the Psalms? What did he say? My heart is not haughty nor my eyes lofty, nor do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. The psalmist depends upon the Lord. He does not say that God is slow to judge, that He has rewarded the wicked, or that He has thwarted the righteous. In quite the opposite manner, the psalmist compares himself to the quieted child who no longer cries, longing after the milk, needing some new thing, but is one whose belly is full, who has moved from the milk to the meat. Who has had enough and has been sustained and has been brought to a level of maturity by the, by the first preaching of the gospel and is quite the opposite of the constant wearying nagging of the people of Israel how ironic that we can see the same comparison the hungry child doesn't give up And yet he has been quieted. What we're speaking on is an issue of contentment. How content are you waiting on a holy God? And yet there is nothing left to really wait upon. You understand, we've received the Savior that they were waiting upon. It has been fulfilled. He sits at the right hand of God, waiting on Him to make His enemies His footstool. You understand, there's a, a point of fulfillment where we can act and live and be pleasing to the Lord our God. And yet so often, we as a faithless people find ourselves grumbling in silence about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or the condition that we find ourselves in. And you might see this quote by our brother Francis Schaeffer. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God. Not in the circumstances that surround them. 
You see, God is not waiting on some fulfillment to come through some other prophet or some other thing in the, in the nation of America or in the nation of Israel. You see, it has been brought to fruition. We have a king who reigns from whose hand the scepter will never depart. And in his return, it will be in power and glory and majesty so that we can reign and continue to reign with dominion with him by his side on high. That's what the scriptures teach. So we act as if we're waiting upon him when he has done all. So our eyes go fixed upon the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, we live in an era of action. We live in an era of action. And yet I'm, I'm amazed at how often, how often we scoff at the people of Israel. How often we grumble like they grumbled. We treat the second coming like they treated the first coming. We've become just as vain as they were vain. We've filled our time and our schedules with the same vanities. We've placed hope as if it's going to be in the success of these vanities that the world provides or that the kingdoms of this world provide. We act as if there will be some success in, a, in an upcoming kingdom or this kingdom of America will prove the, the existence of the kingdom of God. And then even as we see the way God has moved great men to great things, and we see the way in which He has acted among a people who are united in His purposes, and then we begin to treat us as people uh, as if we're waiting. We're waiting on something to happen. We sing songs of patriotism. And what did you mean by that? What did you think of? What, what were the thoughts of your heart that the Lord heard in that time. Did He hear you grumbling because you have lost what has been provided in generations prior? Did you long in your heart that, that God would do something that, that would rectify your situation the way that they did in theirs? What a foolish thing. God has already raised up a nation and called a people unto Himself in Christ Jesus. Yes, there were those men who acted in faithfulness. Yes, there were those men who, who raised up and who preached boldly from their pulpits that people would understand how this kingdom of God would be made manifest in their daily life. He raised up men who would say the kingdom of God is here and God has accomplished all things in Christ Jesus. And he has educated his statesmen in how they would act in a way that was pleasing to God and not wearisome to him. He raised up men who would love their wives knowing that Christ was this glorious fulfillment who have seen themselves wrapped up in the body of Christ, them together with His wife, the bride of Christ. 
who have raised their children as heirs of this kingdom. And yet we find ourselves in lament. It's a constant dripping. It's a wearying of the mind of God. What do your prayers look like this morning? Do we rest in this finished work of God in Christ Jesus? Do you come to Him in confidence knowing what it was He has accomplished? Do you come to Him that that He might show His face to you? The rest of this prophecy will continue. It will continue in drawing us to a very real and outward worship of God to not a faulty worship, not something that's, that's with ill intent and with an impure heart, but something that's with a broken and contrite spirit that our lives would become as living sacrifices before the Lord, that we would see God's promise of the destruction of the wicked and His promise that the law is indeed good, that it would become a goodness of us that we would see fulfilled in Christ who would impute His righteousness to us, that we would walk in it, and His law would become pleasing to us, that we would become pleasing to God. What a glorious gospel. And this is that turning point. It was the turning point of the people of Israel. Listen, a final word before the coming of our Lord and Savior. And yet in some respect, I feel that we as a church bear this reminder that God has brought His Word to us and to, and to caution us against faithless prayers. And you will understand the kingdom is here. Christ is reigning. How will we walk in it? How will we understand you are not waiting for God to be king? He is. You are not waiting for the second return of the Lord. He's already king. Yes, He's not made you king. But He is not slow in His coming. What will you do? Where is your confidence? How will we pray before a God like this? Many of us understand the pleasures that marriage can bring, which makes it such the beautiful metaphor for us this morning. I've heard it by one brother in Christ put it this way, that in their marriage they can experience either the greatest blessing Or the worst of affliction. And that stands true. Friends, you know when your marriage is a blessing to you. And whenever it's wearisome. Perhaps your marriages are afflicted because your faithfulness within your marriage is afflicted before God. Because you are a wearisome bride. Already in Christ. 
What are we to do? If there is a takeaway, if the Lord has moved you to, con- to conviction, if you have, if this word has been preached to you by His Spirit, what do you do this morning? How does Christ address His bride? He has already given Himself for her, and yet He continually washes her in the water with the word. Come to this life-giving word this morning. Spend hours of your time in it, in, in meditation, in reading, in study, in prayer. Conform your life to this Word who is Jesus Christ. That you'll be united with Him in this glorious and divine way. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You have Lord, that You have revealed Yourself. Lord, I pray that You have revealed something amiss in us. Lord, that You would not allow us to remain in sin or in misery. Lord, that You would prove to us as You have in this Word that Lord, You have called us to be a people content in the redemption that You have provided. You have called us to be a people who are happy, who list the praises of our divine bridegroom in Christ Jesus, who walk in the newness of life that is provided in Him, the one who prays our heavenly bridegroom, our husband who is our creator, one who lives to serve and to please Him at His coming. Lord, let us be a joy and a pleasing sacrifice to You. I pray, Lord, I pray that if there is one here who does not know this, who has not entered into relationship, who does not know this Lord and Savior who has died on the behalf of everyone who would call and rest and live in His name, one who has not received this life that He imparts by His Spirit, Lord, that You would act in them this morning. Lord, that You would make them new, that they would fall down before Your face and that they would come prostrate before Your Word and study and see how You are good. Lord, perhaps there are Christians here who have doubted You, who have questioned You, who have shaken their fist and asked, Why, God? Grant them repentance this morning. Lord, that they will see You are good. That You bear them up on eagles' wings. That You give Your promise to come beside them. That You hear their cries and bear with them in their affliction. Lord, that You would forgive them for their lack of faith and You would bear them up. That You would grant them a faith amidst their affliction, a faith far greater than they have ever known, a faith that has been refined by fire. And Lord, for those that have strove in Your Word, let this be as a salve to them 
Lord, that their soul would be uplifted, that they would see again your face and know that it has all been worth it. Father, that to these who are pleasing in your sight, Lord, that they would be praised by seeing your name glorified in this word that we have received this morning. Lord, I pray that individually we would seek your face, that we might live. I pray that as a people of God, as a church, a gathering here at New Life, that we would be a people who seek your face and fall down and serve and worship according to your good word until your return. Lord, I pray for this nation. Lord, that the church would rise up and be awakened from their slumber. Lord, that they would re return from their idolatry and pursue the wife of their youth. Father, I pray that we would that you would restore us to the people who seek your will. Lord, that you would crush what is ungodly among us and raise up godly courts, godly magistrates, godly pastors, godly husbands, godly parents. Lord, that in the people of God, we would see all of the kings of the nations fear us until the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at New Life Preaching Podcast. We welcome you to return each Lord's Day as we study the book of Malachi the call to return to the Lord.